Thank you so much for being here. If you're an old-time listener, welcome back. If you're somebody new, uh, welcome. I hope you enjoy this show. I try to have this sort of free-formed, uh, organic conversation, uh, in opposed to like rifling a bunch of questions at somebody. And the person I do that with today is artist, musician, and activist Daniel Crook. This is a very incredible and uh, often intense um conversation i i uh <laughs> daniel rendered me speechless a couple times and frankly if you, if you know me not an easy thing to do um daniel's great uh i met daniel at uh at a coffee shop that he in uh, echo park that my wife shoots a comedy show at and um and uh i wanted to end i didn't include this in the conversation uh I, and i wish i would have put this at the end because we had such an Intense. But at one point, he he does these paintings about uh, uh, masculine, toxic masculinity, and uh, he he wrote to me and was like, "Hey, would you model? Would you be a model for me?" And I wrote, "Hey, man, I got like a real dad bod. Like, <laughs> this is not like model bod. This is you know, I'm a dad drink beer bod." And uh, he didn't write back, so I took that as a no, uh, which I messaged him the other day and was like, hey, I, you know, I reminded him of that story. And of course, being a nice individual, he was like, oh, that's not what I meant. And I'm sure he didn't, but I just thought it was funny. So there's the little, my Daniel Crook story. Great conversation, wonderful human being, doing good things in the world. Um, we talk a lot about what's going on. He's been spending a lot of time at the protests. Uh, so he's in the middle of the shit that's going on right now, and it's a really great perspective. So please enjoy this conversation with Daniel Crook. Every day you've been protesting? Um, yeah, I do three days on, and then I take one day to rest. How exhausted? How, how, how many hours are you there, like, in one day? Um, between two to four. Am I getting you on a rest day? Say that again? Am I getting you on a rest day? Yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you're well rested. Um, how, how is it? How is it? I, uh, I know this sounds lame, but I can't really go cause I got a fucked up hip. Sexy. <laughs> no, I understand. Um, but I'm just, I've, I've, how, how is it when you're in, uh, how is it in there? Cause I think. Are you noticing a difference between how it's portrayed in the media and what uh, what you're seeing? Oh, yeah, there's an enormous difference. The media in no way is portraying the actual focus or, or dedication or information spread. Like, they're talking, like, they're misreporting numbers like crazy. Like, <laughs> you know, the initial report, for instance, um, for the first march in Hollywood, they said uh, 20,000. And I was there. And then the drone footage came out and they corrected themselves. It was well over 200,000. But, you know, like they just lie so that it seems like the movement is small or momentary. <clears throat> or they focus on vandalism or looting and so on and so forth. And again, as somebody who was present since the start of this, like in Los Angeles as just a body and as an observer, I 
remember seeing white people breaking windows and white people fucking looting. And I remember seeing the cops park a car and then mysteriously two seconds later, it's on fire. You know, it's like, and it's all being like the tactics that are being used in the media. <clears throat> it should also kind of show us very clearly how afraid they are of the influence of this movement as well as the size. Uh, because it's just lied about right and left. I have not seen one proper representation of anything that I've experienced since the CN in LA. Wow, that's crazy. Um, uh, what is the general overall f- mood you get from fellow protesters? I mean, it, you know, it's different every time. Like, uh, often, uh, you know, we uh, arrive to the Jackie Lacey protests on Wednesdays, every Wednesday, <clears throat> and the uh, the mood there is is sad and angry and charged in a in a passionate way. Like, you know, like the last one uh, that I was at when Janaya took the stage after so many mothers and sisters and had, you know, explained the brutal violence that led to the murders of their their siblings and children. They're weeping, and the crowd is just still and focused and facing them. And then Janiya takes the stage, and Janiya is just a fucking force um, of both power and rage. And not like a... And rage, I think in this context often gets kind of like immediately attached to violence, but the rage is just this like unwillingness to accept this any longer. And it just fills the crowd. You can feel it. And the focus and attention is just so directed. Um, Everyone is listening. Everyone is screaming their names. Everyone is chanting. Everyone is still when they need to be and listening when they need to be. Uh, I've been an activist since I was really young. Like I started going down, you know, uh, marching against the war after 9-11. And I was still a teenager, you know, and, you know, marching for gay rights and marching for gay marriage. And I came back to Los Angeles after the Ferguson riot uh, and marched here and, you know, marched for uh, the night that Trump was elected and the ensuing days. And like, I've seen so much activism already and you know I'm only in my mid 30s and I've never seen a force that was so focused, dedicated and organized ever. And that also is not properly represented in the media. Nobody's talking about that. And it's it's absolutely essential that people outside of the cities that aren't attending understand that and see it. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to, like, my mother. I know my mother has no fucking idea what's going on uh, because her little bubble world in the suburbs of Chicago doesn't, she's not going to see it, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it, just in your opinion, why What? Why do you think they don't want this to, to be uh, known? The, 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 what, what do they benefit from oppressing the power of this kind of march? Well, the entire first wave 
of this movement is focused on dismantling the prison industrial complex and the pipeline, uh, the economic pipeline that has been constructed uh, surrounding communities, uh, black communities and, and communities of color that have just been subjugated to this violence and subjugated to this murder and this ignorance uh, on behalf of, you know, suburbia at large. Uh, this movement, as it builds and as it continues its momentum, actually has the capacity to destroy the system that has perpetuated extreme wealth, which has always been reliant on slave labor, uh, the remnants of the 13th Amendment and the effects that that's had um, in building a nation that is completely reliant on this prison industrial complex in order to supply the free labor of black people. And billionaires, whether they'd like to admit it or not, rely on this. They have built their entire, you know, generational wealth on the backs of people that look nothing like them. And whether it's willful ignorance or not, they're also aware. You know, everyone up there, quote unquote, up there, you know, is aware that if this system is dismantled, they will lose their wealth. This is a great equalizing moment. And queer people and people of all ethnicities and backgrounds are uniting for the first time in my lifetime in a way that is magnificent and formidable. And politicians, they're a part of that system. They uphold that system. They defend it. They write more laws that help elevate it and keep it in existence. They're all terrified. It benefits the media. <clears throat> well, it benefits the wealthy. And the wealthy are different than the rich. It benefits the wealthy to manipulate the media in their favor, to try to disenfranchise or dissuade more people from understanding and being intellectualized on this topic. If more people had access outside of Instagram, and this is one of the most beautiful things I'm seeing in this moment, is people just in handing over their social media to amplify black voices and black trans voices at this time, and it's educating in a way that this is the media's responsibility. They should be doing this. They should be, Janaya should be on every fucking late night television show, but they're not. Yeah, it's a stand. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please, please. Oh, I was just going to say, it's, I mean, I don't watch a lot of uh, mainstream, like MSNBC or anything, but when you do, it's just, it's amazing how, you know, their panelists are always in the pocket of some corporation. They'll have, say, like Rahm Emanuel uh, on to discuss healthcare, and it's like, they don't discuss the fact that he is getting paid by a fucking healthcare company. It's like, it, it's just the, 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 the amount of disinformation and bias is just endless. And... um sort of going back to the police, it's like, I grew up in Chicago. Everybody knew the cops would fucking smack you in the head for no reason. So I'm kind of shocked that people still are, like, um, surprised when the police commit violent acts because that was my 
what I, we saw my entire life. And mm-hmm. I'm a, and I'm a fucking, I'm a white guy, <laughs> so it's like yeah, you know, yeah. And I I think that that there's no accident there. Like the media's job has been sanctified with propaganda. You know, it's like it's been sanctified and you know create martyrs out of these enforcers, these militant enforcers. So of course, you know, people in in rural counties and people that. Um, you know, have grown up or chosen to adapt or assimilate into suburban lifestyles and, and white lifestyles and the wealthy uh, cultures, quote unquote, which we know wealthy culture is just uh, thieves, you know, uh, <laughs> every culture that <laughs> surrounds them. Um, of course, they want to believe these things because what happens if you don't believe that there's enforcers guarding the gates from the people that you've robbed. Yeah. I mean, I've, as a guy who's bartended a number of times in my life, I've worked in bars that were like filled with cops and the things I've overheard from their fucking, from their mouths is fucking jaw dropping. I mean, I've heard cops claim that white people are superior. I've heard them call homeless (laughs) people, uh, animals. Um, it, yeah, because uh, look, if you if you are a white supremacist, if you subscribe to this vicious ideology of supremacy, of course you're going to want to be a cop. Of course you're going to want to be somebody that enforces these things because you're weak. And that perceived weakness, the only way that you don't feel weak is if you feel like you can defend at any cost your ideology and your supremacy. That's why, like, I mean, the cultures of wealth has do the, you know, write these laws. Like, for instance, like the, the laws, like in uh, California, for instance, and in surrounding public school funding. You know, like a, a public school is funded based on the median um, what do they call that? The, the median, um, essentially like the cost of, a, of a, a house in the neighborhood. Right. So essentially <clears throat> a poor neighborhood is automatically being given less resources than a rich neighborhood. You know, and that's just one tiny piece. This, this goes on and big and bigger and bigger and bigger and grander and grander. And why is the media scared at this moment? Because we're finding out and we're saying it. And we're sharing it and we're informing one another. We're finally doing our job as allies and as advocates to spread the information that has been kept from us. And it's working. People are angry. More and more people each day are angry, infuriated, because we're finally getting to see just how deep and seditious this has this system has been built and just how long it's been built this way. Tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I feel like from what I've witnessed that it's actually, it has broken through to this message has broken through to people who normally haven't been hearing it. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is like, I feel like this is a conversation that I've had, with all of my non-white friends 
for my entire life. Um, being, being from Napa Valley and being poor and growing up in a farming community, which most of the farming communities in California, I mean, it's very rare that it's white people in those fields, you know? And I grew up being friends with a lot of Mexican kids and Guatemalan kids and kids from all over South America. And, you know, these conversations were normal for me to have. And then as I got older and, you know, started working in fields like in, like design and interiors and such that were more dominated by uh, white people, trying to have these conversations, like there was just an unwillingness to A, either have the conversation or B, listen to anybody uh, that they disagreed with or acknowledge their complicity or, but now it's like, it's the images and the videos and the time that we've had in quarantine. Like it feels like people have finally broken through their barrier and they're allowing themselves to really empathize and feel people's pain and feel the fear and the sorrow that they've never given themselves enough time to feel or given themselves the opportunity to feel or felt like was even uh, important for them to feel. And all of a sudden I'm just hearing conversation after conversation daily and observing these conversations online on all of these different social media platforms, observing people, white people, in places and positions of influence, just amplifying black voices and amplifying uh, black trans voices. And I've never seen this. And to be honest, like there's a period, a pretty long period of my life that I just really didn't believe that white people would ever be truly willing to feel this way or to give this much time and energy to black or brown people. And it's unbelievable to see at this moment. And I'm just praying that this conviction doesn't exhaust everyone, that they, they can see their influence and that they can, they can um, accept their responsibility at this time and beyond, because this work is a lifetime's worth of work. It's seven to eight generations worth of work, you know, and it, it's beautiful and it's painful and it's exhausting and it's inspiring and it's devastating, but it's happening. Yeah, I felt like even before the George Floyd murder that I, I felt like there was something uh, bubbling for a long time where I was like, are, and, and then when the COVID incident happened, I was, and the economy was basically put to a screeching halt because people couldn't work. I was like, I hope fucking people realize that it is, that it is us that has the power of the economy. We control the economy and that, that, and I, unfortunately I don't, I didn't see that <laughs> uh, surge if that makes sense. Um, Cause I was hoping that we would rein that in and be like, okay, the people have the power of the economy. Let's fucking seriously talk about wages, health benefits, all these things, because we could shut this shit down anytime we want. Um, and I, I, I'm hoping that this this also uh, opens the floodgates for change in more aspects of our culture. 
Well, and I feel like um, one of the things that is also quite important in this is like what Angela Davis has spoken on for years, where she's made a point to say over and over again, like, black empowerment is also a labor movement. You know, like, it, it, these things are intrinsically tied because it was the, la- the free, exploited labor of black people that quite literally built generational wealth in America. And, you know, she's had a lot of really beautiful things and inspiring things and wise things to say that are now fu- being understood due to the effects of the pandemic, where I think maybe beforehand white people didn't really intrinsically have to understand the power of labor and how that's tied to the oppression of black and brown people. Um, But now we get it. You know, once labor uh, was withheld by force and we saw the wealthy panicking, trying to, you know, uh, through lies and, and conniving, put us back into the workforce despite the danger because they recognized that they also, you know, recognized the power of our labor. And now we recognize the power of our labor as a whole society. And I, I feel like Angela Davis is over here being like, yeah, God damn it. I've been saying this the whole <laughs> damn time, you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, even uh, Martin Luther King was also, I mean, he was starting mm-hmm. to make his message about class. And I think, you know, I because I, you said you grew up poor and I grew up poor and I watched my father labor, just work his fucking ass into exhaustion and we still struggled. And I just knew I didn't want that for myself. I'm still poor. <laughs> but As am I. <laughs> But I, I'm not laying asphalt or something. Do you feel like, because obviously you, uh, um, do you feel like growing up poor and in your uh, situation of being around uh, various cultures is a, a big part of what informed your perspective today? Yeah, I also, I mean, it's, it's, it's a few things, like a little bit of a perfect storm because I could have very easily as a white presenting person uh, just, you know, drifted right into the the realm that everyone around me that looked like me was willing to welcome me into. But I had a couple disadvantages that proved to be advantages, uh, one of which being, like, I grew up surrounded by drug addicts. Um, and... I come from a family that is uh, very involved in crime. And uh, I think that the blend of, of, you know, my father's side of the family, which is extremely uh, violent and and, uh, criminal, and then my mother's side of the family, and my mother in particular being so incredibly loving and and gentle, um, you know, I... I got the opportunity to choose, um, which my brother, you know, did as well. But unfortunately, he chose the opposite. Um, my brother's been trapped in the uh, jail and prison pipeline since he was a teenager. Um, and I almost did as well. You know, there was a period of time where I also uh, 
found power in crime and found power in intimidation and found power in fighting and violence. And uh, I was very lucky to have my mother there to forgive me and to remind me uh, what was more important, you know, and, and what was more beautiful and what was more powerful. Um, so a mixture of, you know, the family that I come from as well as um, the cultures that I was welcomed in by uh, at a young age definitely uh, helped me to keep my humanity and to, to help, uh, it helped me to maintain uh, sight, you know? Yeah. Was, because I know you have done a great deal of art about toxic masculinity, which is, um, I don't know how I learned this about you. I, <laughs> I think maybe my wife t- told me about your work, and I, I after I met you at the coffee shop, I went on a deep dive of some of your stuff. I guess it doesn't really matter. But that t- subject matter interests me greatly because I feel like, um, and I don't, I didn't know it as a kid, but I was victim to that world. Um, yeah. Were you as well? Is that what, was that why, where that art stems from? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was raised by an abusive father, um, who thrived on fear and the fear of others. Um, the, that entire side of the family, uh, were evil, vicious people. Um, and I was groomed by that. You know, I grew up under that shadow. And I mean, again, like I said, thank, thank the heavens for my mother and for the influence of my mother. Otherwise, you know, I could have turned out just like my brother and would have. Um, my work with toxic masculinity stemmed from that experience, absolutely. But it also... Um, from the world that I grew up in being like identifying as pansexual, you know, not really ever being forced into any specific uh, gender binary when it comes to like the way I present myself or like I was always given a lot of freedom by my mother to do whatever I want, just however I want. I, and that freedom uh, in experimentation at a young age, I think also informed me because I experienced a lot of violence on behalf of the way that I look um, and had to spend a lot of my young life defending myself and protecting myself and fighting and, um, you know, intellectualizing myself as well. Um, I started reading about the, you know, the history of human sexuality and, and gender uh, when I was 12 years old. Um, I just started going to the local libraries and finding whatever I could. And as I started reading and, and informing myself on these topics, it became more and more and more apparent to me that the world that we were living in was A, very young, and B, an illusion. And, uh, you know, at 12 years old, I started having to ask myself questions like, well, what is the illusion? And why does the illusion exist? And I do this work uh, on the topic of, uh, masculinity, 
and the illusion or cult of masculinity as I, as I kind of identify it, um, because it is intrinsically tied into the military industrial complex, uh, you know, creating cultures of men that are, uh, hyper violent and repressed is very beneficial if you want to breed a culture that becomes cops and soldiers that are willing to prove themselves as men at any cost, you know? I'm going to take a little break from the interview right now to thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing and you want to be more of the community that is Conversations with Matt Dwyer, you can become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. There's exclusive content on there. There's bonus episodes, raw files of the unedited uh, conversations, videos, photos. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. It's a great way. It's also a great way to support the show because uh, I, for a long time, was with a network. I am now independent. I'm doing this all on my own. Uh, so please, uh, it would help me greatly if you became a Patreon supporter. If you can't support that way, feel free to uh, rate and review the show on iTunes and tell your friends about it. That means a great deal to me. And for all things Conversations Matt Dwyer, you can go to themattdwyer.com and you could have links to merch and social media and that way, it's an easy jumping-off point for any way you want to find out more about the show, find out, find out more about me, or support the show. I thank you very much for listening, and now we go back to the interview. Yeah, I, that's funny, because I was thinking the same exact thing while you were saying that, of how that it's just mirrors what is going on with the police and with our military. It's like, you know, it's they're, they're, all, my, they're all my fucking dad. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, my, yeah. my father was very, um, you know, if, uh, you know, if I had a cut on my hand, he'd make me do push-ups or he'd tell me to toughen up and uh, don't cry, uh, which uh, Absolutely. I, I, I cried pretty easily. So that was a pretty tough one to, <laughs> I, I cried at. No, my father, my father actually won. I became clinically apathetic for nine years. I wasn't able to cry or experience anything other than anger for nine years and it took years of therapy to get out and man there's there were periods where I really believed that I had been broken and that there was no way that I was going to be able to access things like love anymore there was no way that I was going to be able to access sorrow that it was all going to be anger all the time forever and that is that is the culture that is the weapon that is used against us, perpetuated by us. Like, nobody is doing it to us anymore. We do it to one another. Yeah. You started creating art, though, at a young age. Do you feel like that was... Very, yeah. How, how old were you when you started? I mean, I as literally as early as I can remember. And you were an advanced kid because <laughs> i mean what you were saying about the well, i grew up i grew up in the mountains um an hour and a half outside of town so i either played in the forest or i figured out other things to occupy my mind because you know we didn't have television it was very isolated <clears throat> and you know my grandma and my mom would always buy me pens and crayons and art supplies and pencils and so i just you know used them <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing for a very long time, you know. Uh, what was the catalyst for you to get the fuck out of there? What town was it too? What is it? Uh, Saint Helena. 
and Calistoga. Um, the catalyst for me getting out of there, so I, I bounced around a little bit um, through the Bay Area, and then I, I would um, share my time out on a commune in Bodega, which is a very small beach town up in Northern California, a very tiny population, most of which has lived there their whole lives. And um, I was living on a commune out there. Um, I'd be, I'd live on the commune for like three weeks and then I'd dip into town, do a job, make some money and then go back out for another three to four weeks and, um, write music. And I had a, I was working with a drummer out there and, uh, I bounced around quite a bit, but it was about nine years ago now that I came to Los Angeles and it was because I got in a lot of trouble with the law and I could feel that I was slipping back into uh, old habit because, you know, once you're in trouble with the law, like, it just compounds. That's the way that the laws are built, you know? The fines keep rising, you keep not being able to pay it, and eventually you end up in jail. And then you end up in jail again. And then you end up in jail again. And, you know, it's just like, I could see that I, I needed to take my first chance that I had to get out and I did an art show and I sold a series of nine pieces and in selling that series, um, I made 13 grand and realized it was like, I can pay off my debt and I can get out of here. And I did, I paid off my debt. And two months later I was in Los Angeles. I paid three months rent at a warehouse in downtown and I had $5 in my pocket and I had to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. I mean, I, I, I didn't have tr- trouble with the law, but I, I kept escaping cities as well, um, mostly just because I got fed up. But uh, w- what did you do when you had five? Do- that's because I, 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 that kind of concept scares, terrifies most people. Like I have five dollars in my house uh, pocket, and I have that's all I know. And but it's like I, uh, I've been there like 50 times. <laughs> it's like, how, what was your next step? Cause I've, that story fascinates me. Did you, I mean, I, I right away, I started begging and a friend that, um, wanted to move down here with me, um, who I no longer speak to, unfortunately, um, became my patron and we went into business together and I helped, uh, him, uh, he would get the clients and then I would do redesign, uh, in collaboration with my friend, Zelia, uh, for websites and so on and so forth. Like basically just like winging it, you know, like I had worked in interior design for a great many years and like kind of my, my skill set, uh, which is, you know, which was very hard when I first got here because, you know, it's, it's a hard sell to be like, Hey, people I, hire me because I have taste. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, what do you need designed or redesigned? You know, like, is it a website? Is it a house? Is it a showroom? Is it a store? I can do it. I can build the team and I can get it done, you know? And I kind of did that for three years. And then I helped propel him into being a chef. Um, and then his wife and I, uh, started doing design projects here and there uh, for restaurants like Lhasa in uh, Chinatown, for instance. Like Dana did, um, Dana did the uh, the major design, and I did the labor. So like I painted the place and did the installs and stuff, and the, just shit like that. Like I kind of had to wing it for a long time. 
Did you have any f- formal training in any of this? I've had a lot of mentors, no formal training. I, I couldn't afford to go to college or anything. And so I, I've been very, very lucky to have some truly incredible mentors in my time as an artist, like uh, Melissa and Mercedes Baker, who are two fine artists, painters, musicians in Northern California, took me under when I was 17. And, um, you know, kind of groomed me and taught me, um, you know, essentials like uh, hanging art shows and how to use oil paints in new ways and um, gave me a lot of time and space and love and freedom to make work um, at their property in Napa Valley. Um, And then Aaron Martin, uh, who was uh, two years ago awarded uh, the most prestigious award in interiors in London. I was fortunate enough they flew me out to be there um, she, uh, was who started collecting and selling my work and, and kind of setting the price, um, that I should sell my work for. And I, she was a friend first and then, um, uh, ended up hiring me also as her, uh, fabricator and installation artist, um, via my friend Kendall Ermshire, who is who introduced me to her. And Kendall is still one of my dearest friends and one of my most, um, incredible patrons like when I have an art show if I land an art show overseas Kendall pays for everything you know and we go out together and we hang the show together and um in that I've been absolutely overwhelmingly fortunate yeah that's incredible I've found just from other artists uh, in various uh, formats, just uh, they've everyone I've ever talked to says that their education was bullshit, <laughs> and that they were yeah. they were just there to use the materials or anybody who already had a voice. Like I interviewed Lori Lipton, and she was like, "I was just there for the materials and to make connections. I didn't want to know anything they had to fucking say because they were trying to push me away from what I wanted to do," which. I, I don't know. It just seems thematically with our conversation, like another institution that might, <laughs> that hinders more than it helps. Absolutely. Well, no, I mean, the institution is a inherently classist and b extremely racist. Like I have a friend, uh, Kayla Tange, who's going to school right now at UCLA and some of the work, I mean, a lot of the work that she creates surrounds her ethnicity, uh, being Korean and, and also surrounds, uh, being adopted. Um, and brought here um, after adoption. And, like, uh, her work is brilliant. It's extremely informed and extremely intuitive and precious. And she has just encountered so many moments of microaggression and so much racism in that institution uh, just in the year she's been there, you know? And, like, she, she's doing it because she needs the accreditation, you know? Um, like most people think they have to do it, you know, because if you don't have these badges, then you're only going to go so far, you know? And of course, yes, these, all of these institutions, you know, after the labor movement, we must go next to attack the institutions of the arts and entertainment because these institutions very much prop up white supremacy and are tools that get used to keep uh, this uh, exclusivity around uh, education and exposure. Yeah. I mean, I think of, like, just show business alone. It's like, don't know a lot of uh, 
uh, managers and agents that aren't white. And I would say there's a lot of women, but it's mostly a pretty male-dominated bullshit. <laughs> I was at a dinner in Palm Springs. It was a birthday for one of the like one of the upper uh, agents at CAA, and ASAP was there. And I'm standing next to this man, and both white men, uh, and. One white dude looks at him and goes, is that yours? Now think of what was said in that simple statement. Is that yours? Pointing at his artist, a black man. Jesus Christ. Yeah, these institutions are racist. These institutions must topple as well. And we quite literally what the work, why I, I think I personally say that this work is a lifetime's worth of work is because we literally, all of us, have to be actively and adamantly disassembling and identifying constantly every layer of every institution that has been built within this nation alone, you know, because it's all been built with the same framework. Yeah. I mean, I, the one phrase that keeps popping into my head that I've heard from women who've been sexually harassed, uh, even cops who wanted to speak up is people who are afraid. Everyone is afraid to do so. So the fear has been a predominant factor in our entire culture and that's what I've is oppressing people because everyone is afraid even people in in showbiz like Hollywood are afraid to say a movie sucks because they're even though it sucks because they don't want to not work again because they're like oh I might ruffle feathers and it's time people stop being afraid and fucking yell that was a little trite, but absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, I felt that it was a little cliched, but I mean, it's just like, but that's the one thing I hear repeatedly is like, I was afraid to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Because at all times, especially white people are so aware of who holds the keys to the rest of their life and people of color and black people and trans people the world over are always aware that there's somebody standing at the gate and they have to like police every single word, every single movement, every single posture um, in their lives to please the gatekeeper. And it's done. It can't be like this anymore. Yeah. I, uh, it's just amazing to me. Like, it, I grew up. I think I. I mean, I, I learned empathy because I. But I feel like a lot of peop, white people seem to lack it greatly. <laughs> um, if that makes. I mean, I think that's. I've heard people in bars be like, "Oh yeah, well, if black people would just, you know, listen to the cops, this wouldn't be an issue." Which is to me is just fucking insane to say, and. Yeah, because because what they're saying right there is it was okay that they died because they weren't listening to a cop. 
But the thing is, is that last part of that sentence doesn't matter. The first part of that sentence is what's really being said. It was okay that that cop killed that guy. It was okay that that cop killed that woman. Now, innocent until proven guilty, right? That's the, the lie that we're told, right? Mm-hmm. So how did we get here? How did we get to it was okay that that cop killed them without any due process? Yeah. What needs to be heard in those statements is that that person does not care about the death of a black person. And that's it. It's simple as that. They may say that they do with their words, but anyone trying to defend a cop saying, well, they should have just obeyed. Like, what is being said there is, I don't care that that person is dead. Sorry, I was, um, <laughs> was, I was being disturbed. That I mean, it's heavy, and I don't, you know, I'm at a, a, a lack of words because it's just heavy. Yeah, and this is the reality that Black people have lived with for over 400 years in this nation. Yeah, it's it's embarrassing that it's taking us to this point, to this breaking point for us to, for the vast majority of people to be like, oh, hey, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. It's embarrassing and it's appalling. And it's even more appalling that as like white people, we're having to have arguments over it with other white people. Like I I snapped at a friend the other day where I, I had to say, there, the fact that you are making me argue the value of black people's lives to you is monstrous. And you, in doing so, are a monster. Do you understand that? <laughs> I'm not, I'm laughing because that's, I mean, I, I love it, but it's just like, it's the absurdity. Mm-hmm. Like, in what world does a person's life and humanity really need to be questioned? And by questioning it, what are you really saying? Yeah. The masks are off. And unfortunately, we are at war now. And people are choosing their sides. And we cannot ignore no matter who they are to us, what side they've chosen. Yeah. Do you, do you believe it's going to get worse? This, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, Absolutely. I'm, I believe that right now we're in the calm before the storm. Yeah, I'm, I, I think by November... We, there will be violence and it will be from the right. It will be from, yes. uh, I mean, it's already happened. It's just not happened on a larger scale. I mean, it has, on a, it has from the cops, but I mean, like I'm anticipating like the Boogaloos or one of those great groups to 
come at a group. Maybe people are being lynched. Yes. Hung from trees. That also... The violence has already begun. Yes. When I was in Compton for the march for Andrea, his father stood and spoke through weeping eyes, looking at the sheriffs that are literally 15 feet away from him, pleading with them, not one more time, please, this can't happen again. And less than two minutes later, they shot tear gas and pepper balls at us. After looking his father in the fucking face while he wept about his son, that that department was responsible for murdering three days beforehand, and then they fucking fired on him. It must be understood what that means. And what that says about who we're fighting and who we're up against. They looked that boy's father in the face before they fired. (sighs) That's, I, I, again, I, I just, too much. I know. Imagine how he feels. Yes. That was, I think, one of the first moments in my time joining this movement and showing up in which it became abundantly clear that this was war. This has been a class war for eons, and there's been a race war for centuries, but it became very clear to me in that moment there were news stations there. And they still did this. In broad daylight, at four in the afternoon. Cameras rolling. They don't care. No, they don't. And that's, I mean, it's abundantly clear. They don't give a fuck. And it's coming all the way from the top where they, I mean. Um, I'm sorry. I, 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 I feel a need to f- f- uh, wrap this up. Um, not, I don't feel a need. I'm sorry. I just, I want to find something to round it out, to, to close it with, but I mm-hmm. am at a lack of what is the proper thing to say other than what, what, what would you say? I've never been this for a lack of words in my fucking 181 episodes of doing this thing. I'm it's, and this has been a very, uh, emotional, uh, conversation for me and and I, I thank you very much for your for your time and what you have to say it's been very powerful thank you for having me I think that what becomes more important than anything that I've had to say during this is that 
especially for your listeners in Los Angeles, it's very important to point them to our leaders at this time. Our leaders being Patrice, Dothmel, and Janaya, and Kendrick. Like, these people are leading us. And at this time, it becomes more important than ever to be able to quiet our own lips and listen to them. They've been doing this work for almost their whole lives, and they know what to do. There was wisdom beyond years and generational understanding that these people have, that we as white people or as white presenting people, regardless of our physical presentation, we must turn our eyes and ears to them and we must do what they request. There is no path forward without understanding that there is leadership here and that those leaders are literally begging for us to show up in whatever way we can. And they are telling us how. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Blair. Do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Remember to rate and review it. And if you like, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. Also, listen to my friend's podcast, Hunk by Mike Bridenstine and Kill Gallon's Pub with Joe Kilgallen. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you again.